Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. This past month, we've been diving into the different Italian city-states during the High Middle Ages and Renaissance, learning about their contributions to humanity and Western civilization. So far, we've looked at Venice and Florence. Today, I'd like to travel westward to the top of the Ligurian Sea, where sits an ancient city on a narrow coastal plain resting underneath the backdrop of the western slopes of the Apennine mountain range. Francesco Petrarca, in a travel report from 1358, described this city as, quote, a royal city leaning against an alpine hill, superb for men and for walls, whose appearance alone indicates the lady of the sea, close quote. What magnificent city is the recipient of this apt description? Of course I am talking of Genoa, the Superba. The Encyclopedia Britannica gives a perfect synopsis of Genoa's ancient heritage. Quote, In ancient times, a Ligurian village on the Sarzano Hill, overlooking the natural port, prospered through contacts with the Etruscans and the Greeks. As a flourishing Roman municipum, it became a road junction, a military port, and a market of the Ligurians. After the fall of the Roman Empire, followed by invasions of Ostrogoths and Lombards, Genoa long existed in comparative obscurity as a fishing and agrarian center with little trade. By the 10th century, however, the general demographic and economic upswing of Europe brought fresh opportunity and enabled the Genoese to answer the challenge of Muslim raids vigorously. A Fatimid fleet stormed and sacked the town, but the Genoese raised their walls anew and counterattacked under the leadership of their bishop and of the local viscounts. Soon, Genoese merchant ships were trading briskly in the western Mediterranean and calling at Palestinian seaports. From this entry, we learn that after being a very old, small, and inconsequential town for most of its history, Genoa suddenly flung itself to the world stage in the 10th century. From there, it would have a meteoric rise as one of the most important military, naval, and merchant powers of the Middle Ages. Like its neighbors Venice and Florence, and the other maritime republics of Pisa, Amalfi, Gaeta, Ancona, and Ragusa, Genoa tried to emulate the Republic of Rome in its political system by having a representative democracy with a constitution. Genoa had its own unique twist, however, with its government calling itself the Campagna Communis. This was a voluntary association where each citizen would contribute arms, capital, and labor to the life of the community. And so already we see this idea of self-determination and voluntarism. The assets of the government were overseen by officers called consuls, who were elected by popular democracy. An assembly would be held once each year where the community would decide who the consuls would be. In addition to being a communal republic, Genoa was deeply religious and John the Baptist was christened as the patron of the city. This stable government appealed to people in the surrounding areas, and the area flourished. During the 11th century, Genoa grew to a town of about 100,000 inhabitants. Its commercial fleets were rivaled only by Venice's. An old saying soon developed, Genoensis ergo mecator. Essentially, this was a stereotype. He's Genoese, therefore he's a merchant. Genoa's increasing prominence made it a target for Muslim raiders from eastern Spain and northern Africa. And so Genoa teamed up with Pisa to protect their ports and defend Sardinia. After defeating the Muslims in East Spain and at Sardinia, the Pisans and Genoese sailed down together to Tunisia, to a city called Madia, where they burned down the entire fleet of the Fatimid Caliphate 
while it was still docked in the harbor. With the Muslim fleet destroyed, the Pisans and the Genoese achieved dominance of the West Mediterranean. Genoa asserted its ownership over the islands of Corsica, Sardinia, and Nice, much to the chagrin of the Pisans. This effectively gave control of the entire Tyrrhenian Sea to this tiny Christian republic. This happened to be right around 1096, when Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade. The First Crusade was an effort by the Christians of Western Europe to save their beleaguered fellow Christians, the Byzantines, and restore the Holy Land to Christian control. The First Crusade was a pivotal moment in the history of Genoa for several reasons. First of all, the Genoese navy achieved international praise and glory as it played a key role in transporting many of the crusaders from Western Europe to their destination in the Holy Land, and then it participated in the important naval action, the blockade of Antioch, allowing the troops on the ground to gain victory that day. Second of all, during the First Crusade, Genoa forged important alliances with the Byzantines. They also helped establish some of the crusader kingdoms, such as Antioch, which became key allies as well. The trade deals they made replaced the Jewish and Muslim middlemen with the Italian merchants. Trade with these eastern powers gave Genoese merchants access to eastern spices, dyes, and medicines, African wool, skins, coral, and gold. In exchange, the Genoese shipped manufactured goods from Europe, such as cloth and metals, to the east. So it became a profitable venture both ways. This trade caused banking and shipbuilding to flourish in Genoa and was a huge boost to the local textile industry. Genoese cloth makers invented a rough denim cloth that became particularly popular called Blue Jean, named after Genoa. It was used by sailors for work and to cover their goods on the docks to protect them from the weather. This textile evolved into the blue jeans that we know and love today, especially here in America. Third of all, the First Crusade got the Genoese really acquainted with that part of the world, which would become very important to their empire in the coming centuries. By the 1200s, the Genoese would have neighborhoods and full-fledged colonies in far-flung places like Antioch, Constantinople, and Kaffa, creating a broad stretch of the Crimean coast ruled by the Genoese. Many Aegean islands also became independent Genoese principalities. The economic development of these areas would soon outstrip their neighbors, including Constantinople itself. Fourth of all, in the First Crusade, the Genoese scored some really cool artifacts, including the ashes of John the Baptist and an emerald octagonal chalice of the Roman era taken from Caesarea. This beautiful, delicate chalice was said to have been used in the Last Supper. Later, many would claim it was the Holy Grail itself. Genoa was honored to possess these artifacts, and these relics were a boon to the morale and spirituality of the city. Genoa possessed the chalice all the way till 1805, when Napoleon, convinced that the chalice was the grail, seized it during his conquest of Genoa. Unfortunately, it shattered while it was being shipped back to France. But the French fixed it, and they sent the glued back together thing back to the Genoese in 1816. Anyway, that's a big tangent, but uh, the final benefit of the First Crusade was that it made the 1200 Genoese Crusaders who fought on the ground into an elite fighting unit known as the Genoese Crossbowmen. Over time, these warriors would train many other Genoese in their ways, creating a force of extremely deadly mercenaries. Genoese Crossbowmen were armed with crossbows made locally by the Balistrae Corporation. 
They also carried daggers, wore chainmail shirts called hauberks, and carried large shields called pavises. After firing a bolt, the crossbowmen would hide behind their pavises while reloading. This protected them from other ranged attacks. What makes the Genoese crossbowmen so special is they operated in teams of three. One would sit up and maintain the pavis, while another would shoot and another reload a second crossbow, handing him to the shooter when reloaded. This doubled the rate of fire of the more skilled crossbowmen in the unit. Genoese crossbowmen were so deadly and effective that Pope Urban II and other popes tried to ban the use of the crossbow and other missile weapons. The Second Council of the Lateran in 1139, Canon 29, states that, quote, We prohibit under anathema that murderous art of crossbowmen and archers, which is hateful to God, to be employed against Christians and Catholics from now on. Now, cynical historians claim that the popes were concerned that simple peasants were now able to effectively kill nobles who had trained in combat their whole lives. Regardless of their motives, the very Christian Genoese ignored these decrees, as did the vast majority of Europe. The crossbow and the bow were the great equalizers, and if you wanted to disarm the peasants, then you'd have to come and take it away. And that's exactly what many kings tried to do. For 400 years, the Genoese crossbowmen, as one of the most successful and elite military corps, made many enemies of the rich and powerful throughout the European continent. After the 1248 siege of Parma, Frederick II was so enraged by his defeat that he ordered all of the crossbowmen prisoners to have their fingers cut off. Nevertheless, in spite of the ban and in spite of the hate they were getting from nobility, Effective military tacticians and generals often employed the crossbowmen in many different campaigns. One of the most unfortunate campaigns for the Genoese crossbowmen was during the Hundred Year War between Britain and France. Now, pairing French knights with Genoese crossbowmen seems like a very, very deadly combination. Unfortunately, the French nobility did not fully understand how to employ the Genoese. In an embarrassing blunder, during the Battle of Crecy, the French deployed the crossbowmen to duel with the English longbowmen while the Genoese pavises and extra munitions were still in the back of the luggage train. Without their shields to protect them and the extra munitions to fire rapidly, it made the Genoese strategy pointless. The Genoese fired two volleys, but seeing that they were outranged by the longbows, which had triple the range of the crossbow, the Genoese knew that their best option was to retreat. The French knights declared the Genoese traitors and cowards and slew them on their retreat. After which, these French knights repeatedly charged the fortified English archers until thousands of the knights had died. The total losses for the battle ended up being 4,000 killed, including 1,542 nobles for the French alone. Meanwhile, the English lost about 40. That's what happens when you don't respect the Genoese. And so you can see, after the First Crusade, the Genoese succeeded as both a powerful navy, a wealthy mercantile empire, a place of religious pilgrimage, and a fearsome military force. This brought peace and prosperity to the city for the next 300 years. The living standard of the entire population, including fresh immigrants, constantly improved. Municipal and family pride led to the construction of splendid buildings, wharves, bridges, and churches. One of these buildings, according to Travel.it, was the Palazzo del Comune, which was the fulcrum of commercial and maritime activity in Genoa for centuries. The original edifice was built in 1260 as a Palazzo del Comune. In 1451, the palazzo became the home of Banco di San Giorgio, one of the most powerful banks in Europe, 
which managed the finances of the Republic of Genoa until the 17th century. According to tradition, Marco Polo, confined in the prison that once located in the palazzo, dictated Il Milione to Rusticulo de Pisa, his cellmate, after the victory of the Genoese at the Battle of Meloria. The Fourth Crusade presented new challenges for Genoa. First of all, the Genoese did not want to participate in it, since it involved sacking Egypt for some reason. This was wise, since it soon became the Venetians stab everyone in the back adventure, resulting in Crusaders and Venetians sacking Constantinople, their ally, and establishing a new Latin kingdom in the Levant. This new kingdom made all their trade deals with the Venetians, of course, and so the Genoese were left flat-footed. Fortunately, they were still allied with the Byzantines, and they helped fund the recapture of Constantinople. With the Byzantines restored, Genoa regained its lucrative trade deals, and Genoa and Pisa were given exclusive monopolies over trade in the Black Sea. During this time, they also befriended the power of Sicily and made lucrative deals with them as well. Sadly, some of these deals led Genoa, like Venice, to involve itself more deeply with the slave trade. With their Black Sea monopoly, they were able to sell both Baltic and Slavic slaves, as well as Armenians, Circassians, Georgians, Turks, and other ethnic groups of the Black Sea and Caucasus. They sold them to the Muslim nations of the Middle East. When Venice eventually pushed them out of this market, the Genoese switched selling captured Muslims to Christian Europeans. Even after this, Venice continued to gun for Genoa. A pivotal 14th century war with Venice has come to be called the War of Kyoga. The Genoan defeat in this war deprived Genoa of its naval supremacy, pushed it out of eastern Mediterranean markets, and began the decline of the city-state. By the 15th century, Corsica was in constant revolt, Sardinia was overrun by the Aragonese, the Crusader colonies were recaptured by the Egyptians and the Turks, and France, Milan, and Spain all vied for control of Genoa. Genoa had no choice but to side with Spain, becoming their satellite right at the height of Spain's dominance in the 16th century. And in typical Genoese fashion, they found opportunity in face of the challenges. They played themselves off as Spain's junior associate, becoming the banker to Spain's vastly increasing fortune. Now you may wonder, how did Spain suddenly become so rich in the 16th century? Well, you see, that's in large measure due to the actions of Genoa's most famous son, Cristofa Corombo, Christopher Columbus, as you may know him, born in Genoa in 1451. But that's a story for another time. Nevertheless, suffice to say, it was Columbus's upbringing and apprenticeship in Genoa that gave him his knowledge and passion for sea navigation. In the 1470s, during his apprenticeship with a wealthy Genoese family, Columbus sailed to the Genoese Aegean Islands and rode in a Genoese convoy to visit northern Europe, including Bristol, England, Galway, Ireland, and even Iceland. This Genoese family would eventually send Columbus to Portugal, where he met his wife and started his own shipping business. Columbus eventually would ask the Portuguese and Spanish monarchs to fund his famous expedition to find a western route to the Indies. While they didn't find the Indies, the Spanish who funded the expedition found a lot of other cool stuff like tomatoes, cotton, tobacco, cashews, peanuts, and most importantly, silver and gold. From 1500 to 1650, Spain is said to have brought 180 tons of gold and a staggering 16,000 tons of silver from the New World. This was triple the current European silver reserves, and much of it came to be managed by Genoese bankers. 
This led to a 70-year period of Genoese domination and flourishing that Fernand Braudel has called the Age of the Genoese, a rule that was so discreet and sophisticated that historians for a long time failed to notice it. But the Genoese noticed the new money in their coffers brought with it ambitious building projects as well as Renaissance masters, including Rubens, Caravaggio, and Van Dyck. In 1520, the Genoese seized a new port on the other side of the world, Panama, the first port on the Pacific in what is now present-day Panama City. Sadly, the decline of Spain in the 17th century brought also the renewed decline of Genoa, and the Spanish's bankruptcies, in particular, ruined many of Genoa's merchant houses. In 1684, the city was heavily bombarded by a French fleet as punishment for its alliance with Spain. In 1768, by the Treaty of Versailles, the Republic ceded to France its last overseas possession, Corsica. It was not all sad, though. You see, Genoa, it never had pastures to feed cows, and so they always had pigs since ancient times. But during the 18th century, brilliant Genoese butchers conjured a new delicious snack out of pigs by smoking chopped up pork mixing it with salt, garlic, sugar, peppercorns, and spices, then letting the meat hang in a cool, humid environment to slowly dry, it allowed the meat to ferment, turning itself into a new treat, salami. Genoese salami is now famed and beloved throughout the world. And that concludes our episode for today. I hope you had as much fun learning about Genoa as I did researching it. Genoa is a very cool little merchant republic who found a way to make lemonade out of all sorts of lemon-like situations. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend. Also, consider supporting this podcast to keep us going at podcasters.spotify.com. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.